Hi, I'm Richard Mack, and this is the MYB Cast. In this episode four, my co-host Madalena Ferrara and I are going back into the Traeger Files to talk with an esteemed guest. Dr. Jerry Liesman will be a panelist at the upcoming Traeger Conference held at the Pearlstone Center in Reistertown, Maryland, Friday, September 13th through Sunday, September 15th. That conference is entitled Traeger Approach, Functional Neurology, Medicine. What did Milton know? Dr. Liesman will be representing the functional neurology aspect of our conference. He will also be leading our post-conference, which continues on Sunday, September 15th, and concludes on Monday, September 16th. The post-conference is called Science Supporting Transformation, what we know now in neurology that can be applied at the table. Dr. Liesman is speaking to us tonight from his homeland in Israel. Thank you for staying up extra late to talk with us. It's really a pleasure to meet you. Madeline has shared with me that you're presenting an exciting conference later this week taking place in Tel Aviv called Movement, Brain, Body, Cognition. This is a really exciting event for people like me whose work is involved with movement and somatic healing. Can you share a bit about what is most exciting to you regarding this conference? Well, this is our third iteration, the first of which was at Oxford University, the second last year at Harvard Medical School, and this year in uh, the University of Tel Aviv, and next year, we hope, uh, at La Sorbonne in Paris. Um, what makes the conference unique and why it likely gelled as much as it did is largely because of its interdisciplinary nature, uh, represented our um, participants who come from the fields of neurology, rehabilitation, rehabilitation sciences, biomedical engineering, occupational therapy, physical therapy, sports, the world of dance. And it really is a, a collection of individuals who um, wouldn't normally talk to each other. And what has happened over the past three years, uh, which in answer to your question is the most exciting aspect of all of this, is that these people who would not normally talk do speak a different language, including the somatic movement educators, are actually starting to work with each other. And we are trying to develop through these conferences a common language, largely in the area of how the brain nervous system puts itself together to optimize human function. And that would include everything from early child development in school to um, the aging process, to mental health issues, to architecture, to how we appreciate space, how we move, how to recover after brain injury, um, childhood and adolescent physical and uh, educational problems. So really it's a collective of many disciplines doing many different things, but really who ought to be speaking a common language. I know Madeline is very excited about that. Um, she's talking about uh, getting Traeger involved for the next one that you're planning, which I believe is going to be where? Uh, at the University of Paris, La Sorbonne, we hope, uh, September of 2020. Wonderful. Well, let's bring Madalena in and let's start talking about Pearlstein. Hi, Jerry. Thanks for joining us. It's really great to talk with you again. Do I need to brush up on my French because I want to be at that next conference? I hope you do because I don't speak it at all. <laughs> well, let's start our conversation today with a little bit about you so that our listeners can get a little bit of background about your work. You're a medical doctor, a neuroscientist, a researcher. Your primary interests are about where movement and consciousness intersect 
from a scientific perspective. And you've described yourself to me as a bridge between disciplines. Your work is particularly focused on the curiosities of these subject matters in the population of pediatrics or children. Is that right? That's correct. Anything else you would like to say about that? Well, um, my interest is, uh, for obvious reasons, for actually for academic reasons, has sat in the area of development and developmental disabilities for a very long time. But it doesn't allow me to answer fundamental questions. So I have to look elsewhere to, to be able to understand how the nervous system develops, how it might get impaired, and what it is that we might do to remediate these kinds of conditions. So um, for, for me, it's uh, highly difficult to be able to understand the human condition without looking at it across the lifespan. So I don't necessarily see myself as a developmentalist in the sense that I look at children only, but I can't understand childhood unless I understand the decremental process, uh, like we older people are, uh, by when I say we, I mean myself, when, that I'm going through. Um, so that's part of it. But part of human existence has a lot to do with what we're aware of, um, what's going on in our environment, how we protect ourselves. So the issue of attention and consciousness and awareness fits into my um, scope of thinking as well. And if I were to be able to encapsulate all of it into one broad uh, concept, it would largely be how it is that the nervous system organizes itself um, so that we can live most adaptively and most effectively day to day. And for that to happen, we're not getting into the world of consciousness, which speaks directly to your question. And by consciousness, I mean the ability to be both awake and aware at various levels. And how that happens, we think, is a consequence of the development of brain networks, starting from conception right through the course of life, both in its increment and its in decremental processes. When we get older, it's harder for us to make these connections. But my ability to look at how the brain actually reorganizes itself because it is a self-organizing system that we're talking about, how it is that the brain organizes itself is the fundamental issue. And that is how I would define consciousness on various levels. It is the ability to create functional networks uh, that are continually changing in response to the world around us. So it's our ability to be able to effectively manipulate both our worlds and our inner world as a result of the interaction between the two. Let's talk about your early training, which I know you don't like to talk too much about, but I believe that everything that we do, every experience helps to shape who we are. So I wonder if you might say a little bit about how your early background in music shows up and impacts your work today in neuroscience. Uh, well, um, as a kid, uh, I practice diligently every day, and I'm a violinist, and um, had a penchant for uh, writing music. So um, I automatically applied for, got in, and did a degree in music. And I came to a number of conclusions. First, about me. Um, I was pretty good, but I wasn't that good. And not being that good means an international career wasn't going to happen. Uh, so I could have wound up as a as a music teacher or something like that, but I decided 
probably not a good idea. So I dropped the whole thing and uh, from there went uh, to um, England, well, in England, and um, took a career in medicine, which um, actually in the long run didn't happen either. Um, and from there, the large, largest reason why it did not happen for me in clinical medicine uh, is because my area of interest was in developmental disabilities in the neuro pediatric neurology. And there really isn't much that one can do with this. So from there, I went on to and looked at um, what we might call restorative neurology, which is how to get people functioning again, children in particular, who for whatever reason in life have been rendered dysfunctional or afunctional. And from a degree, an additional degree in neuroscience and biomedical engineering, I was then being able to think about making stuff. That is, finding alternative solutions that were outside of the issue of drugs and surgery. And that's largely how I spent uh, the past 45 years or so, which is um, as a researcher in the neuroscientist, where they bent on finding solutions for difficult problems, mechanically and uh, physically, but also being able to understand the nature of the nervous system. The point of connection be between music and, uh, and the neurosciences, and science, I should say, in itself, uh, and now I'm in the world of simply conjecturing, because I really don't know. But my guess is that in music, we are very much involved in the examination of patterns, in the appreciation of patterns. Um, that's largely what I do as a scientist, which is I'm interested in looking at what connects with what, on the basis of which I can project what comes next. What makes music so interesting is you hear a theme, especially classical music, especially of the Baroque, you hear a theme, you hear a piece, and you hear it again. You hear it again because it's so abstract, so it gives you a grounding in something. But if you keep on seeing it again and again, then what you start doing is you learn to anticipate the next move. Well, that's what we do as human beings. Uh, that is, if you were to walk down a flight of stairs, uh, counterintuitively, your brain will not trip off, your motor strip, sorry, your motor strip will not trip off um, when you move. It will trip off. The cells will activate before you move because you anticipate the next step. When you're playing a musical instrument, for example, you're doing the same thing. There isn't time to get from the head to the fingertips in the case of a violin or in the case of a piano. Where is it? Well, that got me into looking at things called motor synergy, which is how the spinal cord kicks in. What are the nature of these synergies? How many of them are there? Can you, should be you tapping into the brain in order to rehabilitate someone's walking ability post-stroke? Or should you be doing something else? That if you try getting someone to walk by um, brain manipulation, you're going to be spending a very long time doing not very much. The reason is because walking is in the spinal cord. Or in the, um, and what we need to do with that is to understand the nature of how to reorganize matters. So for example, if you take a toddler who's learning how to climb down a, a flight of stairs, he'll do so one step at a time because he hasn't been able to automate the process yet. Inside of not a long period of time, a couple of months, this kid is able to fly down a flight of stairs because once he has examined the riser height of the first step, his brain tells him that the second one is likely to be the same height 
and so he can automate the process. So my overall connection with music and all of this is how it is that we automate motor function. How does motor function connect with cognition? Um, and how do the measurement patterns that we see allow us to examine these functional connections in the brain or, as the case may be, functional disconnections? That would be like looking at a highly structured piece, like a, like a Bach, Toccata and Fugue, against something like Arnold Schoenberg's serial music that doesn't have a particular form. In fact, the, the tonalities are sort of random. So there are a lot of interests and applications that tie together chaos theory, physics, um, biomedical engineering, um, the neurosciences, together with very practical aspects of life. And I think it's the interest in, this, in how our world is organized that makes both music and science uh, very much uh, complementary. It's like a symphony and a symphony in the nervous system as well, right? Exactly, exactly. I got that image as you were talking. So my early training was also in music. Uh, I was a singer and an aspiring actress. But my first university degree ended up being in public accounting which makes absolutely no sense. It's 180 degrees different, just like your change was. I ended up in a master's program for exercise science and got a little bit involved in the scientific process. Um, but then I found yoga and got into teaching. And so the journey with the Traeger approach has been especially interesting to me because I see myself as an educator. And... I think that that's one of the places where your work and my work intersect. We've had some conversations about that. The process of teaching and learning in the body. So if you could talk a little bit more about how your work in the lab is inherently about that teaching and learning process. And I think it's, the, it's, it's a fundamental understanding of how the nervous system develops one knee and how reflexes work and how retained primitive reflexes can affect performance of all kinds like cognitive and motoric and sensorial and pain and so many other things that um, to create a fundamental understanding of the energetics of the system of of how it is that networks are built and how they interact between ourselves and our external environment and that includes other people how we entrain with others, what makes us aware, when is our consciousness, in, if not impaired, when is it reduced and when, it is it, is it height, when is it heightened and how we can um, facilitate each direction. That is, is, there are times that we would want to veg and there are times that we don't. And what and how can we manipulate that system? And that's essentially what all of this, my interest is, or interest is about. That's fascinating. I do a lot of work with uh, young athletes, some with cerebral palsy, and I'm finding that by introducing a movement through their CP-affected limbs, um, that this movement is moving back up through the neurosystem into the brain, and over a period of time, a short period of time, the brain starts to recreate that movement on its own and those CP affected limbs start to create more movement, more range of motion and strength. I wonder if you can comment on that. 
Well, I would agree that cerebral palsy has no cure. That's the anatomic damage that has created as a result of whatever. My interest in your question, which is a great question, is can we bring the reorganized? And the answer is, yeah, let me give me a couple of examples. Um, I had a young lady uh, when I was still in school, maybe 40 something years ago, 45 years ago, um, who wound up at our hospital brain sick. Sometimes that happens uh, with an encephalitis. And whilst she was there, um, she had a brain scan, and there wasn't really very much that one could see. And my boss had asked me what I thought about it. And I said, I don't know. Was it a mistake? And uh, he said, um, you can do better than that. And I said, well, I don't get it. So I asked if there was a CT scan done, and he said, yeah. And I saw that. And basically, she was um, hydrocephalic from birth. That is, in English, she had uh, large areas of liquefaction of her cortex. However... She was a student of architecture at the University of Manchester in England. She was uh, likely brighter than all of us put together. And the um, question is, how did she function? When we did something called regional cerebral blood flow examinations, we found that the area of that would normally be considered, and in the back of the head, be, uh, to be concerned with vision, was in fact capable of, was active when uh, she was solving um, arithmetical or mathematical problems. So the brain rewired itself in some, in some way. In cerebral palsy, post-brain injury, post-concussion, um, post, not concussion, but post uh, for example, one very popular uh, means of um, retraining individuals' motor function is through constraint-induced therapy. By constraint-induced therapy, it means that instead of rehabilitating the um, the affected side, you constrain, you literally tie down the intact side and have the person function only with his impaired side. That's going to force the body's interaction with the environment to move in the direction of automation. Because what's underneath all of this is our need to be able to automate life. This is a fascinating topic for me. I'd like to take it to a place where I'm finding that uh, exactly what you're saying. If I'm taking their good side and I am basically creating a sense of uh, balance, I use the analogy of allow your strong side to relax and allow your CP affected side to catch up. And that balance going back and forth has created some amazing results. That's exactly what uh, I was talking about, and it's in common use. I mean, there's so many other examples of this in so many other applications. Um, so another example might, might be, and we actually spoke about this in the past, Rami Chandran's work on amputees. That is, uh, there, there's a high degree of localization in the motor area of the cortex that's concerned with um, movements, lips, um, body parts of one sort or another, that if they're gone, other areas will take over that space. Um, but his work in particular was the following. People who have lost an arm, let's say have lost their right arm, um, have what's called phantom pain. 
And the reason for the phantom pain, which is pain, a limb that doesn't exist anymore, is because we've previously automated the existence of our right hand. That is, the brain knows the right hand is there. So it sends messages down and there's a continual, continuous loop between fingertips and, and, and the brain, which allows us to not pay attention to it. However, if you chop up an arm, uh, there's a message that comes from one end, the brain, that gets to a place but doesn't come back. That's an error message. Error messages mean, uh-oh, you got a problem. Uh-oh, you got a problem, get it fixed. <clears throat> go to a physician, go to bed, take off time, take two aspirins, I'll see you in the morning, whatever it might be. It's a consequence, direct consequence of something being wrong in the system. So what Rami Chandran did was a very simple experiment. He got a box, and in this box, he bisected the box with a mirror. And the individual who has an had an amputated right arm would put his left hand into the left-hand side of the box and see it reflected in the mirror as if it was his right hand. Meanwhile, his right arm, the amputated arm, would be inside of a screened-off portion of the box. And as soon as the individual saw his right hand, which really was a reflection of his left, the pain disappeared. And that's a really clear, practical demonstration of how it is that our sensory sensory motor systems interact with our environment. We're getting a visual image of the hand that's there. That cancels the error message. You don't feel the pain. I'm changing my environment. I'm giving myself feedback from my environment that I should be getting from the environment. It should be my feet on the floor, not the cane. It should be one step after the other. It should be the rhythmicity of it. Uh, it should be going from, from discrete responses to practice automated responses. It's like playing a, a tune on a piano. But if I did it, there isn't time for those individual notes to be brought out. So you need to create these motor patterns. We do this in all aspects of life. If I were to tell you a phone number, uh, like uh, my former number in the United States, it doesn't exist anymore, so I can tell you. It's 516-223-2479. Uh, now you know where I live. Um, <laughs> Long Island. Uh, right. There are not nine numbers. There are three numbers. It's 516-223-2479. 2479. We build our environment in the context of how we most effectively can deal with information in our nervous systems. So we have chunking. We know things like primacy versus uh, recency effects and what we tend to forget and how many trials to acquisition. And we know all of these things. My beef, actually, is the lack of taking. This goes back to the conference issue, why we have it. It's taking uh, known findings, going over 150 years in cognitive science, there's nothing new with this, <clears throat> and translating it in some way into meaningful clinical procedures that can actually make a difference. MYB Cast is produced and engineered by Mitch Lieber, recorded at Beef Machine Studios. MYB Cast is sponsored by Mind Your Body a somatic movement therapy, yoga therapy, and meditation clinic located in Cedar Grove, New Jersey. 
Mind Your Body specializes in the Traeger approach. For more information, contact us at mindyourbody.us or visit the Traeger website, traegerapproach.us.